Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand. From the Gert Boyle studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. We turn now to the complicated intersection of religious freedom and other constitutional values. These are the issues at the heart of a few recent Supreme Court decisions. The highest profile one was the 303 Creative case, where a web designer said she wanted to be able to refuse to make wedding websites for same-sex couples, despite a Colorado law that prohibits discrimination based on sexual orientation. The court's conservative majority ruled in her favor. Another case involved a mail carrier who was refusing to work on his Sabbath. The court unanimously decided to broaden religious protections, making a new standard for testing religious accommodations. Jim Oleski is a law professor at Lewis and Clark Law School. He focuses on religious freedom and sometimes competing values and rights. He joins us once again. Jim, welcome back. It's great to be with you, Dave. I want to start with the specific issue at the heart of the Colorado case. What did this web designer, Lori Smith, argue? So she made two arguments. And actually, uh, the same two arguments have been made by most of the wedding vendors over the last decade that have brought these claims. As your listeners will no doubt recall, the most famous of those cases was called Masterpiece Cake Shop, which involved a baker who refused to make a cake for a same-sex couple in Colorado. We have a case like that here in Oregon, the Sweet Cakes by Melissa case. There's a florist case up in Washington. And of course, the case decided last week, as you mentioned, involved the website designer. And all of these wedding vendors, what they they have argued is two things. One, that the First Amendment's free exercise of religion clause gives them a right to exemption from the non-discrimination obligation. And second, that the First Amendment's free speech clause gives them a right not to comply with anti-discrimination law. And the theory there is that if they are required to provide services to same-sex weddings, they're being required to send a message expressing celebration of something that they oppose. Their, Their speech is being compelled against their will. Now, in the case that the court decided last week, interestingly, the court did not grant review on both issues. It did not grant review on the religious liberty claim. So although the case is often talked about as a religious exemption case, it's actually not. They only granted review on the free speech issue. And they ruled in favor of the website designer on the free speech issue. That it would violate her free speech rights for Colorado to apply its non-discrimination law and require her to make websites for same-sex couples if she makes websites for opposite-sex couples. There's a lot to dig into here. But just the, the, the law that she was arguing was unconstitutional was the, the, the state's, Colorado's anti-discrimination law. Bro- broadly, what did it say? So like the laws in uh, about 45 states, uh, the the law prohibits businesses from discriminating against people on certain grounds. The, the most common are race, sex, religion, disability. And then about half of the states, including Colorado, including Oregon, have included in their anti-discrimination laws protection against discrimination based on sexual orientation. And that's why in Colorado, if she you know, served straight couples but not gay couples, she would be violating Colorado's non-discrimination law because it bans discrimination based on sexual orientation. And it was Oregon's version of that same kind of law that was at stake in the Sweet Cakes by Melissa case, where the Bureau of Labor and Industries cracked down on the bakery. Is that right? 
Exactly right. And that case is still going on. So the day after the court decided the 303 creative case out of Colorado, it sent back the Sweet Cakes by Melissa case back to the Oregon Court of Appeals. This is, the, by the way, the second time this has happened. This case has been going on for a very long time. It went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court uh, when Masterpiece Cake Shop was also pending there, the case out of Colorado. Uh, after the court decided Masterpiece Cake Shop, it sent Sweet Cakes by Melissa back to the Oregon courts. The Oregon courts reaffirmed the decision, went back up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now the U.S. Supreme Court has sent it back yet again to the Oregon courts for further consideration in light of their decision in 303 Creative. What did Neil Gorsuch, writing for the conservative 6-3 majority, focus on in his decision? So excellent question. And there's actually two, I would submit, two different ways to read the opinion. There is a narrow way to read the opinion and a broader way to read the opinion. So a a lot of the opinion relies very, very heavily on the stipulations of fact that Colorado agreed to with the website vendor. And those facts included that she was going to be very selective in choosing who she made websites for. She was going to vet them carefully. Uh, to see if their values lined up with hers. Uh, There was a stipulation that when she makes these websites for customers, they're going to express her message of celebration and approval, which we ordinarily wouldn't think is necessarily true of businesses. So like when a business makes a happy birthday cake, even though they're writing the words happy birthday, we typically don't think of the baker as being the one sending that message. We think of it as the customer's message. But here, Colorado stipulated that when 303 Creative makes these websites, it would be her message. That was a very damaging stipulation to make for Colorado, and Justice Gorsuch relied very heavily on that. Now, if that's all the majority opinion said, you might say, well, this is a very narrow decision. Very few businesses are going to be in that situation. But he also has language in his majority opinion that more broadly casts doubt on non-discrimination laws. At one point, he says that the very purpose of applying anti-discrimination laws is to eliminate ideas. And if you actually take that seriously, all anti-discrimination laws will be unconstitutional violations of the First Amendment. Now, other portions of the majority opinion make clear that that's not where the court is going. But that broader language does uh, make one wonder if the, the decision might have broader impact than just cases where a state stipulates to the very specific facts that were stipulated in this case. I want to focus in on on the free speech argument in particular, because it, it I mean, every time we've talked about this, I guess I've been slightly befuddled by it. Mainly, I guess I'm wondering how far it goes. If if a cake or a message on a cake could be considered speech, if in this case the the you know have a great wedding or or whatever would be written on the website is also the speech on the part of the business. Um, then what about a sandwich? I, I mean, which is half a joke, half not, right? I mean, that is that a creative expression of somebody's culinary skill and, you know, cultural experience? What about a B&B where the B&B owner put the pillows on the bed in a certain way that expresses their understanding of who's going to sleep in that bed and, and who I'm, I'm, I'm just, and that you can go on and on so many things that we pay for in life. What is art? What's expression? And what is just a pure business transaction with no message attached? So uh, it's an excellent question. 
Justice Sotomayor, in her dissent, you know, dives into this issue and, and basically says, look, if you look at compelled speech the way the majority does, you can find compelled speech everywhere. And, you know, you can basically carve a huge loophole into anti-discrimination law. The court, it seems, if you, you read overall impression you get from reading the majority's opinion is no, they're not going to go there. You're serving sandwiches at Subway. You might call yourself a Subway artist, uh, a sandwich artist, but you're not going to be able to refuse to make the sandwich. But okay, what about the, you know, artisanal cake maker that, you know, serves cake for desserts at high-end restaurants and a couple comes in for an anniversary. Can they refuse to make the cake because that's, you know, custom-made and particularly expressive? I'd submit the court doesn't tell us what the test is. And again, part of the reason they didn't have to tell us what the test is because you had these stipulations by Colorado that these websites by 303 Creative did express her speech, not just the customer's speech. So we don't have the test. What about in future cases where the parties disagree, whether it's the customer's speech or the business's speech? We don't have a test from the court in this case to decide those hard cases that you just uh, mentioned. So I think where that leaves us is lower courts are going to continue to split. So, you know, Oregon may come out one way when Sweet Cakes by Melissa comes back down to the Oregon Court of Appeals and a court in another state may come out a different way. And I suspect we're going to see this issue for a third time go back up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Hmm. Uh, we've heard a lot about standing over the years, and we've talked about Supreme Court cases or, or at cases at, at any level, the ability of someone to properly bring a suit. Just briefly, th this case in recent days, there's been some interesting things that have come out, which is that um, Lori Smith does not currently have a wedding web design business. She never turned down a same-sex couple. She was never fined or prosecuted under Colorado's anti-discrimination law. She argued and said that if she did refuse to provide services to same-sex couples, then she would run afoul of the state law. And then there was a whole Oregon addendum to this in recent days where it turned out that one of the people that she said or her lawyers said had asked for her services for a same-sex wedding, that case seems to have been fabricated. Um, a lot of, of, of background, which is not exactly related to the, the legal question at hand, but how did she have standing given that she actually never suffered harm? It was all perspective. So the court has long allowed what's known as pre-enforcement challenges to laws that, that a party may be arguing is unconstitutional, uh, so long as there's a realistic risk of injury. And, and in this case, uh, because Colorado and 3038 Creative agreed that if she refused to serve uh, same-sex couples uh, equally with opposite-sex couples, that that would violate Colorado law. Um, it was pretty clear that if she began her business and she started saying, I'm going to make services available to opposite-sex couples, but not same-sex couples, which is what she wanted to do, that she would then be charged with violation of the law. So the parties didn't disagree about that sort of imminent injury that would occur if she started to operate that portion of her business. And I should just add, because this wasn't clear in all of the reporting, she has long had a website business. She, she's made websites. 303 Creative has been in business since you know at least 2012 and made lots of websites. She wanted to add this sort of line of products, the web, the wedding website line of products 
uh, more recently, and that's where this conflict arose. If you're just tuning in, we're talking right now about religious freedom with Lewis and Clark, Lewis and Clark Law Professor Jim Oleski. Let's turn to another recent ruling. It was brought by a U.S. Postal Service employee named Gerald Groff. Why did he bring suit? So he brought suit because he takes Sunday as his Sabbath. Uh, and he worked for the U.S. Postal Service, and for a while he was able to uh, not work on Sundays. At one point, the U.S. Postal Service wasn't providing services on Sundays. Then after they started providing services, he was still able to to work out not working on Sundays. But at a certain point, uh, from the Postal Service's perspective, it became uh, impractical to allow him to take all Sundays off. And he argued that... um, he had a right under Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. This is a a law that prohibits employers from discriminating on a number of grounds, including religion, and which specifically requires employers to accommodate, reasonably accommodate the religious practices of their employees. He argued he had a right to be accommodated uh, from the obligation to work on Sunday. And so this statute was interpreted by the Supreme Court uh, four decades ago in the in the, in the late seventies uh, to be a relatively weak accommodation requirement for businesses uh, vis-a-vis their employees, and and he argued that interpretation was incorrect and it should be a stronger it should be interpreted as a stronger uh, accommodation requirement. And a unanimous court uh, agreed that the the accommodation requirement has more teeth than many have perceived it to have over the past 40 years. So the case is going to go back to a lower court where he can make his argument under this new, stronger standard. He may still lose, by the way. Uh, the Postal Service maintains that even under the, the, the standard the court has adopted, they have uh, a justification for not accommodating him. But he's at least going to get to, to make his case under the new standard. I want to make sure that I understand the difference in the two standards. If I'm correct, for 40 plus years, it was if an employer could show that um, there was even a a trivial way in which the accommodation um, would impact their business, then they could refuse an accommodation. So far, so accurate? Yeah, and this precise phrase they used was not trivial, but de minimis burden was the the precise phrase. Yeah, I'm trying to translate from the Latin. (laughs) Yeah, no, 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 that's that's good. (laughs) Okay, and now it's that if there are substantial increased costs to the business, to the employer, then they could uh, refuse an accommodation. Is that right? Correct. So what's the legal justification for tying whether or not someone could actually you know be able to follow their religion according to to their own their you know their faith or their faith leader tying that to the cost to their employer i'm just wondering what the legal justification is for that so uh the legal justification is that that's what the statute requires so this is not unlike the first case we discussed this is not a constitutional case where the court's sort of interpreting the constitution and deciding what standards should apply here congress passed the statute and it specifically said employers have to reasonably accommodate but there's a defense uh they do not have to accommodate if it would impose a and this is the statutory language undue hardship on the conduct of the employer's business and so the whole question in these cases has been well what does undue hardship mean in the earlier case, as you pointed out, it seemed like, well, anything more than a trivial burden would be viewed as an undue hardship. After the uh, the Groff decision, it's a substantial cost will be viewed as an undue 
burden. And I guess I mean, it, I, I, so and it, it can make sense if you're a business. What's the? Is there any clearer way to know the impact it's going? It's having on you than saying our bottom line is being substantially impacted. Well, <laughs> so this is you know substantial is not a self-defining term, uh, and so the court did not really put. Uh, meat on those bones in terms of figuring out exactly what a substantial cost is. Instead, it sent the case back down to the lower courts for consideration in the first instance with this new standard. And I think it's going to take some time to figure out what exactly is a substantial a substantial cost uh, in terms of monetarily or burdens on other employees because they have to work weekends if the the, the religious employee doesn't. Uh, that's all you know to be worked out. But what we know is the employer is going to have to shoulder a little more than a tri- at least more than a trivial uh, cost. You know, to put this in sort of number terms, maybe if on a scale of zero to five, zero is no accommodation requirement, and five is the strongest possible accommodation requirement. The Supreme Court was long interpreting. The accommodation requirement as a, a one or a two. The, Groff was arguing for like a four, and the Supreme Court seemed to settle on a three. What exactly is a three? They haven't told us yet, but it seems sort of like a middle ground, uh, a substantial but not super strong accommodation requirement in the workplace. I'm going to turn to the big picture. Two years ago, the legal scholars Eric Posner and Lee Epstein wrote in a paper that, quote, the Roberts Court has ruled in favor of religious organizations, including mainstream Christian organizations, more frequently than its predecessors. And they had numbers to back that up. That was before Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and was replaced by Amy Coney Barrett. How big a change have you seen in terms of the court's older, say, mid-20th century approach to religious freedom and, and other intersecting rights and the current court's approach? Well, first thing I'd say is, you know, the 20th century was not a constant approach. The court flip-flopped on these issues back, you know, in the in the 20th century uh, quite substantially. But I think the, the most recent sort of big change is probably best captured by what happened during the pandemic. Uh, the first cases that reached the court on... Uh, religious liberty challenges to COVID restrictions failed at the court, uh, with Justice, Chief Justice Roberts joining the, the perceived liberal members of the court in rejecting those uh, five to four. Then Justice Barrett replaced Justice Ginsburg, and those cases suddenly started turning out the other way, and the religious claimants were, were winning uh, those cases. So that's probably the sort of clearest indication of the changing composition of the court resulting in a change in results on these religious liberty claims. What do you see as the next frontiers in religious liberty, religious accommodations, or associated issues? So as I mentioned earlier, the court, notably in the 303 creative case, didn't take up the religious liberty claim. It, it decided it on free speech grounds. And the court's religious liberty jurisprudence is still unsettled. So the court has flip-flopped throughout uh, the last 60 years on whether the free exercise clause of the First Amendment grants a right of religious accommodation against government action, and if so, how strong that right uh, might be. And uh, the court, in a case uh, you probably recall, Employment Division versus Smith back in 1990, said there's no right of religious accommodation. 
uh, under the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. In more recent years, the court seems to be moving back to there's a strong right of religious exemption, including in those COVID cases. But the court has not clarified the law for the lower courts. And so I think the next step is for a majority of the court to sort of land this plane and tell us definitively, well, what is the right, if any, of religious exemption under the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. I should uh, remind folks that we actually uh, devoted a, a whole segment recently to a podcast episode about that um, employment division of Oregon v. Smith case, a, a fascinating conversation and, and a fascinating case. Jim Oleski, thanks very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Jim Oleski is a law professor at Lewis and Clark Law School. 